What makes a great leader great? How do we create a high-performing team? And when we say leader, we mean everyone, because everyone is leading their own life. Will yours be a life by design or a life by default? Those are the big questions, and this podcast will answer them. Welcome to the Becoming Your Best podcast, where we help you apply the 12 principles of highly successful leaders, because great leaders will produce great results. Welcome to all of our Becoming Your Best podcast listeners, wherever you might be in the world today, this is your host, Steve Schallenberger, and we have a very special guest and friend on our show today, and I am as excited as I've ever been to have somebody here. He's wonderful. He's a -a one-of-a-kind individual with a life uh, of inspiring others, including me, and helping people all over the world to reach their fullest potential and dreams. Welcome, Dennis Waitley. Hey, Stephen. Great to be with you. It's a a real honor and a privilege to be on your podcast, and I hope we can shed uh, some more light to your audience, which you do so well on Becoming Your Best. Well, thank you so much. Well, yes, we'll just go ahead and get right into it. Uh, And before we get going, I'd like to just give a little background of some of the uh, things that Dennis has done and, and generally uh, his nature, it's, which is amazing. Uh, he has inspired, informed, challenged, and entertained audiences for over 35 years. I know that because in 1983 and 84, uh, in one of my first companies, when we had 700 sales reps that were going all over the world, Dennis was one of the individuals that we invited to speak to and train all of these young sales reps that were going all over. And they were energetic, uh, full of energy. But Dennis, and along with a number of his friends, Zig Ziglar, Earl Nightingale, uh, Ira Hayes, I mean, these are some really cool people uh, who changed our lives. And Dennis was one of those. Uh, And so... We are just part of that, but he has done that all over the entire world. Uh, He's spent many years in China. Hopefully, we'll have the chance to have him tell us a little about that experience in India, the United States. Recently, he was voted Business Speaker of the Year by the Sales and Marketing Executives Association and by Toastmasters International and inducted into the International Speakers Hall of Fame. He, he's had over 10 million audio programs sold in 14 different languages. Uh, th- this is just great. I actually pulled, Dennis, a number of your books off my bookshelf uh, again this morning. Uh, I've read them many times, uh, The Psychology of Winning, The Seeds of Greatness, uh, and it goes on, The Winner's Edge. Uh, His audio album, The Psychology of Winning, is the all-time best-selling program on self-mastery. He's a graduate of the United States Naval Academy at Annapolis and a former Navy pilot. He holds a doctoral degree in human behavior. Uh, Dennis, we're so excited to have you with us. Well, thank you, Steve. It's really great to be with you. You know, it's been a 
wonderful journey. I'm still out there. You know, people say, well, you're, you're long past retirement age. And I said, well, retire by its very definition means to go to bed or tired for the last time. If you're retired, <laughs> it means you're tired again. So I'm, I'm re-inspired and retried instead of retired. And, and I think that's one of the secrets that we all learn from people like Billy Graham and people like, uh, you know, who George Burns, uh, you can name, name them. And they seem to live longer because they're engaged in learning and they have the curiosity of a child that, that doesn't end when you finally stop earning. So you, I think your yearning should, and learning should continue regardless if you're no longer earning. Well, that is a great way to put it. And all of a sudden, all these, that great voice of Dennis Waitley is coming back, and we just kind of lean forward and listen to all those great quotes that you have. That's an inspiration for me. Uh, like, I'm already past retirement, but I am nowhere compared. I think Dennis is like 184 at least. <laughs> well, I tell you, it, it, it seems like it. You know, Steve, I've been, I've been doing eulogies for all of my contemporaries, and that's not, of course, something that you look forward to. So I did a eulogy for Jim Rohn, eulogy for my friend Zig Ziglar, a eulogy for Wayne Dyer, a eulogy for my friend Stephen Covey, and and even for Robert Schuler and Billy Graham was uh, a friend of mine. I don't like to drop names like that, but as I look at, at them, I say to myself, wow, I'm so fortunate to, to, to still be out here. But I have a cousin in England, Jack Reynolds, who's 106, and he <laughs> holds the Guinness Book of Records for the highest, longest zip line uh, journey for the oldest person, and it shows him at 106 shouting and yelling as he's going down this zip line over the, a mountain in in England and I asked him how do you live so long and he said I look forward to to being 107 <laughs> oh that's great you know just recently Dennis I've had the opportunity in just the last few months uh, to be with a number of longevity and health doctors just on a retreat or different circumstances one in Singapore they're Dr. Oz was one of them, uh, another uh, uh, Dr. Mao is his name, and then the third Dr. Fotuhi, they are amazing, but they talk about, and they're among the world's leaders on health and longevity, and they all reflected a, a number of things in common that we can do to extend healthy living, uh, stay fit, uh, get adequate sleep. Uh, one of the ones I like that Dr. Oz said was, your heart needs to have a reason to keep beating. Well, that's good. That, that's very good. That's, that's what I, I have learned that, too, because I, I studied prisoners of war uh, for my doctoral dissertation, and I found that no American prisoner escaped during the Korean War from a minimum security camp, but many of them es uh, escaped from a maximum security camp, and that's because leaders always want to get home or get to where they're going and people who feel that they're victimized and have no way out or no way forward then don't live as long and that's what happens to many service people and coaches when they retire if they retire and do nothing and have nothing really going on you know we all say why don't we just play golf and fish 
Well, I like to eat what I catch, and I don't like to kill fish necessarily, but I do like the taste of a fresh fresh fish, and I don't play <laughs> golf anymore because why would I ruin my self-esteem on, on a walk <laughs> like that? <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, there's so much we can talk about. I think today, let's start talking, and I, I hope you don't mind, and, and for the benefit of our audience, uh, I'd like to start talking, start off talking about the psychology of winning. Uh, this is a wonderful book, and I am going to read just a small portion out of it as an introduction, and then perhaps uh, Dennis can tell us about what inspired him, what led to him writing the psychology of winning, and how has it been impactful in your life and others? So let me read this uh, clip first. Uh, this is where he talks about true winning. True winning, however, is no more than one's own personal pursuit of individual excellence. You don't have to get lucky to win at life, nor do you have to knock other people down or gain at the expense of others. Winning is taking the talent or potential you were born with and have since developed and using it to fully towards a goal using it fully towards a goal or purpose that makes you happy. Winning is becoming the dream of yourself that would fulfill you as a person with high esteem. And winning is giving and getting in an atmosphere of love, cooperation, social concern, and responsibility. And that is why I've been so inspired about Dennis, because not only does he set it out there, but then he, he says, now here are some things that we need to do that will help us realize those dreams. So how did it all happen? What led to the psychology of winning? And Well, it's a, you know, of course, a long journey, but as a, things always start in childhood. So as a little boy, I grew up during World War II, a dysfunctional family. My father left home when, when I was, I think I was, nine years old when he left, but he went to war and then he and my mother broke up and my mother became very bitter uh, because he wasn't sending, uh, they weren't sending his checks home. And so she became um, disillusioned with life and was fairly negative. And as a, as a way of combating that disillusionment, I rode my bike about 10 miles uh, over to my grandmother's house every Saturday because she was an inspiration. So she and I planted a victory garden, and she taught me about the seeds of greatness. She said, whatever you put in the soil and nurture will come up and, and be fruitful. And I said, but how come weeds don't need water? And she said, well, weeds are like <laughs> negative thoughts. They blow in on the wind, and they don't need any watering. They just need people to repeat them. So we, we did this victory garden, and she inspired me when I was little. And in a dysfunctional family where your father maybe is an alcoholic and your mother's a negative for perhaps all of her right reasons, I found that by reading biographies of people who'd overcome enormous obstacles to become successful, I found that these people had problems that I never even dreamed about, and yet they seemed to be fulfilled and happy. So I read a lot, and then I began to try to be a leader in my school to overcome feelings of inadequacy and feelings of, of, of abandonment, perhaps, by my father. And to make a long story short, uh, going to the Naval Academy during the Korean War, I learned uh, 
a lot about discipline and a target seeking. And I became a Navy pilot, which meant that I had to visualize, internalize. Uh, I had to uh, fantasize, but I had to be goal oriented. And I think as a surfer in Southern California who finally became disciplined enough to be a carrier pilot, these things went together, but I never wanted to destroy people in war. I wanted to defend my country, but I, I had a calling that I wanted to develop the potential within people because I was struggling myself. And to make a really long story short, during the worst time in my life, when I had custody of my four little children, I was divorced and had no income. I wrote The Psychology of Winning at the Worst of Times. Now, people, you know, Tony Robbins and some of my friends will say, well, usually you write a book about your success. And I said, well, I wrote the book for myself so that I could learn from what I was not doing to do the things I know I should be doing. And so at the worst of my time, I wrote my best work, so to speak. And so I think writing it for myself, giving myself the encouragement to do things that were a little more difficult, but took a little more habit, a little more discipline, a little more effort. I put together these these principles and I used POW because I had been a rehab facilitator for the returning Vietnam prisoners of war. And I used it as a metaphor. POW means either Prince of Wales, putting on weight, power of women, <laughs> uh, or psychology of winning. And it's a perception through the eye of the beholder. So my premise is, it's not so much what happens to you that counts. It's how you take it and what you make of it. So it's your response to the daily life, your anticipation of the future, and the way you, you treat failure as fertilizer. Failure is the fertilizer of success. My grandmother used to say as we were fertilizing our plants, she said, we just take all the stuff and mulch it up and it grows green plants. And I said, so that's what you do with failure, huh? You just, yeah. she said, you don't lay in it and wallow in it. You use it as a learning experience. So I would say that my grandmother, uh, who immigrated from England and going through World War II and the Korean War, I thought we'd always be at war because that's all I knew growing up. And so... I was so gratified to realize that the war has finally ended, but POW does really mean for me psychology of winning rather than prisoner of war. Wonderful boy. What, what great comments. And thanks for the background. Talk about seeds. There are so many nuggets of what you just shared. Of, and your grandma must have been some lady. Well, I think about her every day. I have a mahogany butterfly that she always wanted, and I finally made enough money with my paper out to buy it for her. And it's the only <laughs> gift that I wanted uh, from her life. But uh, it's in my kitchen, and I look at it every day. And we have a little silent conversation, but she was definitely the role model and inspiration in my life. And I, I'll always be grateful for, for having her. She would say, you mow the best lawn I've ever seen. And I would ride my bike 10 miles just to get that kind of recognition from her and that good feeling of you're a good boy and you can do good things and the seeds of greatness. And I, I always ask her, I said, will the Japanese win? 
And she said, no, you always get out what you put in, so you, you, you get the harvest of the seeds that you sow. So she said they will not win because their premise for doing what they did was not good and honest. And I said, wow. She said, so model yourself after people who've given service but not necessarily are celebrities. And I've always felt that the most successful people will never be known in the media because they're not celebrities. They're so busy living life and doing good, they don't get covered by the media. Well, great, great insights. Uh, and um, if you wouldn't mind, you said something uh, that caught my attention. You said in the middle of all this, you had, uh, you know, this wonderful influence uh, and contrast of experiences as a young man, but the influence of your grandma and talking about planting the right seeds and and in the middle of all this where you're feeling, quote, unquote, a bit like a failure because of some of the things that had happened, you said, just mentioned that you felt a calling uh, to help others develop their potential. And you included yourself in that group. Would you mind talking about that feeling you had, this, this calling you felt that you needed to address and respond to? And, and how big of a deal was that for you? Well, it was really a big deal, Steve, because at the Naval Academy, the Naval Academy is Episcopalian, and growing up, the only religious uh, training I had was my grandma reading some really great proverbs and, and things out of, the, out of the good book. So I went to Sunday school because the Presbyterians had better uniforms on the softball team. And so I, I went through all these <laughs> uh, re religious experiences, and finally— and, and later, Billy Graham said to me, he said, so you've had all these experiences. What denomination are you? And I said, sir, I was hoping you might give me a suggestion. And he said, you know, you're on your, you're on your journey. So the truth of the matter is when I would hear Handel's Messiah at Christmas time, there was this inner tingling and this feeling that there was something internal. And I, I think I was becoming acquainted with my soul, and yet not having any formal religious training, it was definitely an inner inspiration. So I felt that perhaps I had made a lot of mistakes uh, in my apprenticeship in life so that I might be able to learn to do the right things. And much of what I've written about are certainly repetitions of the scriptures and, and the Old and the New Testament and all the great uh, books that have been written. So there's no question that I'm not an original. Uh, I'm, I'm someone who's gleaned from reading and experiencing and traveling about these things. And I think that it was at that bad time of not having income, having my four children wanting to come back home to, to San Diego or to California. And I was in Pittsburgh in their worst winter, and I had just sold the Jonas Salt Foundation to the Mellon Foundation back uh, in Pittsburgh, and I found myself uh, divorced with custody of four children who didn't want to be with me in Pittsburgh in the winter. They wanted <laughs> wow. to come home. And it's almost like saying, you know, you know like, uh, like saying, come on, we've always been a team. And they said, we want to go home, Dad. And I said, I know, but you're with your dad. And they said, yeah, I know, but we want to go home. And I think that was the turning point where you put your head out the window and say, 
I'm fed up with myself. I'm not going to take it anymore, but which meant I'm not going to do this to myself. So I went into this program of self-analysis, self-awareness, and found that I was not doing the very things that I had read about, and I was only superficially scratching the surface. I was only skin deep. And so I got into it uh, very deeply, and that became that book for the psychology of winning, which became an audio program first and then a book, was really uh, a diary of what I needed to learn myself. And the only regret I have, Steve, is that at the time that I wrote it, O.J. Simpson was running through airports for Hertz Rent-A-Car and had, had been a had suffered rickets as a child and had bow legs and, and he became this NFL superstar. And I, I included him in my book and I've been trying to remove him from the book ever <laughs> since. <laughs> but you can't pick winners, you know, you can't pick winners in all the, the so-called role models. Uh, he certainly isn't a role model. But so in other words, I, I learned these principles for me so that I would do them, and I began to do them, and I went from being uh, somebody who was always late, which is perfect for my name, Wait Lee, wait for me. <laughs> and so I should have changed my name to Swiftly or Rushly, <laughs> but I became Waitley, but I became first to the gate Waitley. I became someone who was always on time, and I did that because I am an absolute, uh, an absolute believer in the creation of habit. And I've learned so much about good and bad habits and healthy and unhealthy. And about 90% of our daily activities are habitual. We do them autonomically without even thinking. And so I've spent most of my life trying to help people not break habits, but you don't break a habit. You, you rewrite it. You overcome it. You, you change it, but you don't break it. Uh, you know, habits are like submarines. They're silent and deep. They're like comfortable beds, easy to get into, but difficult to get out of. <laughs> and uh, habits are just this knit pattern of thought that becomes automatic after a while. And so I think working with the Olympians, I was really lucky, as you know, uh, Bill Simon was president of the Olympics, and he appointed me as the first chairman of psychology for the United States Olympics in 1980. And through that experience, I watched these young, amazing young people get into the habit of winning. And they became, they did within when they were doing without. And they simulated and they rehearsed and they practiced on and off the field. And finally, watching the skiers go through the visualization at the top of the run before they hit the first gate and watching swimmers go through the, the meet, watching figure skaters backstage going through their routines and not falling during a triple axel. I saw all of this and I said, you know, in addition to being inspired, in addition to being emotionally inspired, there definitely is a way to do this if you can cr control your thinking and if you can fill your thoughts, which I call psycholinguistics, uh, because thoughts are traffic. And the brain is either a cul-de-sac, construction zone, or a freeway. And you can create a freeway in your brain by controlling the traffic that flows through your brain, and it actually makes 
a new highway toward your goal. It's like a GPS system, but instead of uh, instead of a, uh, a goal positioning satellite or a, or a positioning satellite, it's a goal positioning system in your brain that you can train to have a target so specific and so emotional that your brain will allow very little distraction to get you there. So fortunately, through the years, neuroscience has proven that positive thinking is more than just the placebo effect. It actually is the our creator's internal pharmacy that really helps uh, optimism become the biology of hope as well as the psychology of hope. Well, these are really extraordinarily inspirational ideas, and I, I'm just thinking, I know that so many of our listeners, including me, and I'd expect all of them, have this feeling of something special that they can do in life. And, and it takes going through thinking about their own unique talents and this introspection you, that you described as saying, well, how do I address that? And how do I concretely move forward? And so these things that you're sharing are so important, so inspirational. I know that they're covered in your books. Uh, as you think about this, the book Psychology of Winning, what are some of the key, you've been talking about them, some of the key parts that are really important for us to realize our goals? Well, that's a very good question. I think the first one is realizing that your intrinsic worth. I think that um, worth internalized is better than worth externalized. And I think you have to feel deserving of success before you'll really experience it, which really means that if love is not inside of you, then how can you give away something you don't possess? So love must be there in the first place. And I'm not talking about narcissistic self-love. It's the kind of thing that's saying, given my parents and my background, given who I am, how I look, what age I am, my ethnicity, my religious belief, I'm kind of glad I'm me. And in fact, I'd rather be me than anyone else in the world living at any other time. And in fact, that's who I am. I'm as good as the best, but not necessarily better than the rest. So I don't compare myself favorably or unfavorably with other people, although the Olympics do that with a standard of excellence. But that's just to be an Olympian and to compete with world-class standards doesn't mean you're necessarily trying to knock and beat the other person. You're just trying to be your best against world-class standards. So I think the important, most important thing is to believe in your potential, because only then will you invest in yourself. If you don't feel worth investing in, then you won't invest in it. You'll live your life as a spectator, uh, uh, happy to be in the stands. And I'm happy to be in the stands as well, watching tremendous performances. But it's much more fun to be in the arena, however small, and participating. So I think intrinsic self-worth, believing in your dream when that's all you have to hang on to, is the single most important quality. And then the second one is to always give more in value than you expect to receive in payment. Because it seems to be that you really do have an unfailing boomerang. People always call it the law of attraction or the law of cause and effect. But I've found when I'm truly interested in helping other people genuinely, not to get something for me, 
But if I get out of me and into them and transmit whatever value I have in the way of service or advice, that, that in that way, I, I don't expect a return on the investment, but I usually get it tenfold. So I've always believed that if you give more in value than you receive in payment, you'll be truly rich in every sense. And then, of course, there's the idea of expectation, optimism. Uh, the world revolves around optimism and people who believe in solutions rather than are just complaining about the problems. And we have so many critics and so many tweets and so many, so much Twitter and so many Instagrams and so much Facebook and so many selfies. You know, I'd like to be unselfish in a selfie world. And I'd like to, instead of being skin deep, I'd like to be soul deep. And I'd like to measure diversity not based on how you look on the outside, but the experiences you've had as you've been growing up. In other words, we all bring a diversity of experience. Why do our eyes have to tell us what we should believe? Or why do our ears and our eyes have to be the ones that are the megaphone and also the, the block? So I believe that in expecting the best, that optimism uh and it's uh, Harvard does have a new uh, school of placebo, and they have found that even people who have arthroscopic knee surgery, if you have the the sham surgery which you agree to, and they just do a little incision and then sew it up, the chances of your recovery and feeling good are almost as well as if you have the real surgery, <laughs> which shows that God has given us this incredible ability to believe in something that we really want and is valuable and gives us the, 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 the ph pharmacological influence to do it. In other words, the endorphins and the harbingers of, of peace and, and happiness. So I believe also that happiness is the decision that you make. And I've trained the Olympians. Above all, I've decided to be happy. And I think happiness is a decision, not a result. And if you wait for a result to make you happy, you'll probably be forever hung in that suspense of wondering when it's going to happen. Well, I'll just tell you, Dennis, uh, for all of us who are working on becoming our best, which uh, literally creates a a fulfillment, a light, a happiness within us that goes out and radiates and touches everybody. These things that you're teaching us and sharing with us uh, today are the very things that create that light. Uh, and I've been taking good notes today. I, I'm, I thank you for that. And I'm always shocked at how fast time goes. Like we're done. The 30. Oh, I, I know we are. And <laughs> 30 minutes are up. I spent yeah, I spent a lot of my time talking to Uber drivers, and I said, you know, you have this incredible mechanism, and they say, you mean my little GPS that I have up here on my dashboard so I can take? I said, yes. First, you must know where you are, and then you crank in where you want to go. And if you know where you are and where you want to go, it's much easier to get there because that's called focus and specificity. And they go, wow, thanks for the, thanks for the info, Doc. Uh, <laughs> do I get do I get a tip? But but anyway, Steve, it's been a real thrill, real honor for me uh, to be with you. And it just uh, I just keep wanting to plant apple seeds like Johnny Appleseed. And I don't know how many of them will 
will get in the soil and take, but it doesn't matter if you just keep throwing them out, one or two. And all I want to do is make a difference in one or two lives, and that's enough for me. Plant shade trees under which I myself will never sit. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, I can tell you for sure of one person, and I know it's countless people where that seed uh, has fallen and grown and continues to do so. So I personally thank you. Well, thanks, Steve, and I hope we connect again. We will when, when you're this way and I'm that way. Let's, let's really do have a reunion. I think it's important, especially with long friends who haven't seen each other but are still friends for a long time. Yeah, you bet. Well, we'll count on that. Now, we can't end this podcast without this question. And the question is, if you're giving a parting shot to your family or your friends uh, and brothers or sisters across the world, what would it be? It would be that time is the only equal opportunity employer. And please don't rush through your life trying to get wealthy only to find yourself too old to do the things that you save the money to do. And remember the one most important thing, the values you leave in your children are much more priceless than the valuables you'll leave them in your estate. My children have never thanked me for all the money that I've spent on them, but we always talk and laugh and cry over the time we've spent together. So make sure you spend time with those you love, not just tweets and not just Instagrams and not just texts. Well, that's great advice. And uh, Dennis, how can people find out more about what you're doing? Uh, how can they have access to your book, your materials, or whatever? I think, you know, just going to DennisWaitley.com, and I have that funny one, one N in, in my name, D-E-N-I-S, <laughs> and then just W-A-I-T-L-E-Y.com. And I, what I'm trying to do is create a library, and most of it free, so I'm not trying to get people to go to my website so I'll make money off them. I'm trying to go so that they'll be able to get NFL locker room style pep talks for free, which, which would mean the, the music, uh, the lyrics, the, uh, if, if you will, the quotes and the best of what I've done. I'd rather give it to them free than try to sell them something on a subscription. So just DennisWaitley.com is all they need. And, Hopefully, they'll get more free than, than uh, trying to surf around a store. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you, Dennis, for being part of this show today. It's, uh, it's been amazing. Thanks, Steve. Look forward to seeing you, and all the best. Okay, and we wish our friends that are listening today all the best as well as you continue making a huge difference in the world. I'm Steve Schallenberger with Becoming Your Best Global Leadership, wishing you... A great day. Thank you for listening. Would you like help to apply the 12 principles of highly successful leaders in your life, in your family, or in your organization? Call us today at 888-690-8764 to speak with a helpful representative to evaluate your situation and how we can help. Or you can visit becomingyourbest.com. Whether it's a corporate training event, keynote, workshop, trainer certification, or personal coaching, it would be our pleasure to serve your needs. Once again, call 
800-800-8764 or visit becomingyourbest.com today.